Sound design. Live. Well, no, he just he showed up at the Commodore Ballroom, and I put it in line during sound check, and I went, oh, great, just take my money now. It made a profile, which we all know how a profile sounds, all of a sudden sound like no other profile I've ever heard before. Sound design. Live. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks. <laughs> All right, Sean, so what are you doing in Minneapolis? Uh, three Night Stand, Brandy Carlisle, State Theater, sold out, not a seat left in the house. What? How are you going to get me in? I already took care Squeeze of you, man. I got some pull. Right. I got some pull. Right, um, three Nights, last night was interesting because we did a broadcast mix, okay. which it's really cool because the band has kind of entrusted me at this point to just send a mix from front of house. So when we did Austin City Limits about... Two months ago, they were like, you know, with a mobile truck there, I mean, we have the capabilities of doing a full split or a stems or whatever they want. And the band just was like, you know what? We like the way your board tapes sound. Just send that really? to the radio. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, three nights here. Um, that means there must be quite a bit of Brandy Carlisle fans in Minneapolis. Yeah. We, we do, we do, we're doing well everywhere. I can't, it's just, it's amazing. When I started with the, the, them about, three just over three years ago um i'd known about the band i'd known they had a, a really good following but just in the last three years it's been amazing the tour we're on now is for the record by the way i forgive you i saw your eyes behind your hair and you're looking tired but you don't look scared which Dave Cobb produced and Shooter Jennings produced, and it's an amazing record. And we actually started rehearsals just over a year ago. And when I say by rehearsals, we started with the trio and uh, the drummer in Brandy's living room and myself. Just um, I had done the kind of the second half of the Firewatcher's Daughter tour, which was their last record, and then... um, started with this one where they handed me this amazing um, piece of art, the record, and said, this is what we want the show to be like. So a lot of vintage effects, a lot of different things going on. None of the songs kind of sound the same, but there's a lot of the same vibes going on, including some of the older songs that have the, the way that they need to sound. So it's, it's, it's been great. It's been so we've been on this tour for a year now. Wow. I mean, the equipment hasn't been back to the Northwest since winter last year. Okay. Any trouble with any of the equipment? Uh, Sending stuff back? Replacing things? uh, Bits and pieces here. Wheels on cases. Cables go bad. You know, sub-snake lines you have to repair. You know, just normal upkeep, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, You know, consoles, I like to wipe them. Do a fresh um, OS Mm -hmm. on them every every couple of months just so it doesn't build up. But I'm pretty particular. Like, when we have opening acts come in and they use our stuff, 
I like to make sure that their memory sticks get scanned on a computer outside to make sure there's no viruses or anything uh, before. I own the console package and the mic package uh, and pretty much the whole control package minus the monitor wedges. I've had the profile for like since its inception, so it's, it's coming up on like 10 or 12 years now. So I pretty much know how to maintain them and actually a couple of the local companies back in Portland, Oregon, when I'm not on the road, they'll have me come in and freshen up their consoles, change out RAM and hard drives and do wipes and stuff like that because I've seen what can happen, you know, when all of a sudden like someone puts in their memory stick and they're like, my show file's not there. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, you had a bad console somewhere along the way. So yeah, f as far as that, um, we had a mic go bad the other night. First night, yeah, we had a... a a clip mic on the French horn. It looks like it got crimped on the cable. You know, one of those oh, wow. little micro condensers. Sure. Yeah, no. You know, we, we tend to baby our stuff really well. You know, and the way we work is we kind of work, you know, two to three weeks on, two weeks off. And okay. we maintain stuff pretty well. So, you know. Two weeks off means you get to go back to go home for a little bit? Yeah, everybody's okay. kind of family based on this tour. So we're all kind of generally around the same age bracket. Okay. You know, uh, late 30s, early 40s, we all kind of have young kids. So it's it's great, you know, and it's the, it's the best touring experience I've ever had. Wow. And, and but no plans on ever going anywhere, you know, just as long as they'll have me, I, I'm here, you know. Uh, how'd you get the job? I have a friend who worked at their booking agent company. And uh, I had just finished a tour with KT Tungstall who was in the same booking agent as these guys were. And when I found out that they were looking for a new front of house engineer, I got a phone call and I put my resume in and the management company, Red Light, who I've worked for years with, um, many, many bands with them, mm -hmm. put my resume in and they said, yeah, you know, he's a good candidate. And the, But these guys are very personal. So they were like, can you come up to where they live outside Seattle? And I sat down with them. We actually sat, we, we were just supposed to meet quickly, and we wound up sitting at a coffee shop for like three hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> talking about music and just, sure. you know, theories and all that, and they went, great. And then um, it, was, it was a different transition than any other tour I've kind of jumped onto. Most of the time, you're replacing somebody. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe not a good or bad situation, but you're literally stepping into somebody else's shoes, where this one I kind of transitioned in, their old front of house engineer was still there. So I came out with them for a week just to see if, you know, 75% of touring is just not so much the skill that you have. It's can you get along with these people you're going to be in a bubble with a lot. And so I came out for like a week and kind of when I kind of got the job, it was going to be um, front of house and I'll be the production manager also because I've had that experience with a lot of the other acts I've worked for. And um we uh, just came out and I kind of PM'd a little bit and kind of figured out if I fit in the mold. And lo and behold, it was great. After the first, they were on a two-week Christmas run, mm -hmm. um, acoustic trio. It's a funny story because we were on the East Coast and it was in 2015. And I had had a pretty busy year in 2015. I was still doing a lot of Robert Randolph stuff. Um, I was working with uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates as the front house engineer. And I also did KT Tungstall and I did Rich Robinson. And then when that all wrapped up, I went out as just a, one of the audio crew guys on the Florence and the Machine tour. Oh, cool. And loved it and just wound up kind of, just kind of running, I don't even, running it, just, you know, one of the, the crew guys, not so much a mixer or a, uh, just 
to help kind of get things in and facilitating things. And I was gonna, originally it was like, you know, hanging PA, running cable, running feeder, ground subs. And I loved it though, but I, I would dump the trucks and pack the trucks. And, and I loved it because after that point of just mixing, 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 it was nice just to kind of be in that position. Hold on a second. I think I just heard you say that you loaded and unloaded the trucks, and then right after that, you said, I loved it. Was I that did. a mistake? I still, yeah, I still, I, still, I still pack the truck on Brandy Carlisle. I still, as the production manager, front of house, because I can usually get front of house done and down quick. The audio package is pretty well put together that we can get it boxed up rather quickly. So I'm, I have no problem. I love being in the truck. I love the Tetris of it all. I mean, when you, you were work, made for this job, yeah, you know, and it just—I'm one of those guys. If I load our truck two times, I have the pack committed to memory, and I mean, I can literally just like yell. Even the truck driver, the guys, like, no, that doesn't go there, and they're, you know, I've drawn a few maps for people now, and sure. you know, I'm, I'm big on um, consistency. Just let's just keep it the same, so we know how it goes. What I think was interesting about uh, you getting this job is that you mentioned a resume and you mentioned doing some proactive stuff to get the job. And I think most often we get jobs, it seems like it's just kind of out of the blue, like someone recommends you, everything's kind of happening behind the scenes. Someone recommends you and then you get the call, like, can you do this job, basically? So this is interesting that you, you kind of applied in a way and you said, hey, I want this job. Please consider me for this job. I think that's less common, right? Yeah. Most of the time it's like, hey, are you available? Can you fill in? Can you, you know, okay, we're try- or we're trying people out. I've been on a few gigs where we're going to try three different people and whoever the band likes is going to be the one that happens. And when we did that Christmas tour, I came out and I was only there for a week. And then my parents still live in Albany, New York. So we finished, we had a day off in Vermont and we were just kind of hanging out and I sort of rented a car and I was going to drive back and they're like, yeah, you're, you know, it's going to be great. You know, I was going to start 2016 beginning of the year. Um, we were going to do two New Year's Eve shows. Um, Alex Gardner, the old engineer who I love, friends with to this day, worked with his father. Mm-hmm. Portland constantly was going to transition out. I was going to transition in. And uh, funny enough, I drove back from Burlington, Vermont, like four hours, back to my mom and dad's house. And 2015 was so busy. Also in 2015, I, I had um, we had our, uh, my son Harrison, my wife did, and first kid, he was at the time, maybe four or five months old. So I was gonna, rest of the year, I'm done. I had been away for a while at that point, so I decided that, um, you know, I got back to my parents' house, I was gonna fly out the next morning, go back to Portland, Mm -hmm. celebrate the holidays, and then New Year's Eve, we would kick up. And lo and behold, I went home, had dinner with my parents, we were having a good time. I knew I had an early flight the next morning and got done with dinner, sat on the couch with my mom and dad. And the twins, called me and they're like, hey man, we gotta tell you, we had a great time with you. You know, we think this is gonna be a great fit. We had a good time. By the way, can you come back tomorrow and finish the run? (laughs) Oh wow. (laughs) So I just remember calling my wife and she was, but you know, my wife is a saint and my best friend and the best person in the world. She's like, you know, this is gonna be good in the long run. So you should stay and do that. That year being um, when we were doing Hall & Oates because they were East Coast based, a lot of the time I stayed on the East Coast at my mom my mom and dad's house so I could fly in and out and do those gigs. So okay. I was in his home and I apologize to Nicole now that <laughs> as much as I could have been, but uh, 
Yeah. So that was that. Yeah, was that's the, a tough thing to negotiate. Yeah, but most short of the, term, long term. Yeah, most of the time you're just like, hey, are you available? Can you do this? When can you get here? Can we try you out? You know, this was more like a, a job interview. Like, hey, we're gonna check with some people who you say you've worked with, and it kind of makes sense because it's like we're gonna be together doing this for yeah, a year or more. It was it was pretty 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 proactive. I mean, most of the time when you're hired for a tour, you're hired for that leg of the tour. Yeah, a few weeks, maybe yeah. a handful of months. Sean, you have done another interview recently with Larry over at uh, Roadie Free Radio. It was a very good interview. You Love talk Larry. all about getting started, uh, you know, a lot of just a lot of your career. So, um, I don't want to repeat that. And for anyone who wants to know all about your career and where you came from, they should go to listen to that. Yeah. Interview. So we should just talk about technical stuff. Cause technical Larry doesn't stuff. know shit about being an engineer. No, I'm no, totally but, kidding. I, but, I, but I do, <laughs> Larry's I, great. I do love that because selfishly I've become pretty good friends with Larry and I will always tip him off to people. I think he should go get, oh, okay, this cool. is not technical because I love I love what he does because it's the story of how you got there. Yeah. Listen, we all know in this industry, if you're a sound guy or a lighting guy, we all know our jobs in some form or another. But how is your family life mm-hmm. being that you're this front of house engineer or you're this drum tech or you're whatever? And I love that. I want to know that because if you just stay in the technical world the whole time, um, I'm I'm a my whole thing in life as a as an audio engineer is we all know the left brain right thing one side's artistic one side's technical, and I always want to be fifty fifty. My favorite guys who do this stuff are exactly fifty fifty. They're wizards when it comes to the technical end, but also they're very artistic. Where you know this reverb would sit well with this mix, you know, and the coloring of the sound of this would really work with this, where at the same time you're just like, well, that filter could be here and this, you know, and I really love that balance. And it's, it's a big part of my, a big part of who I am and what I do. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So technical, yeah. Yeah, so so let's talk about the show that you're on now. I think that would be the most fun thing. Let's just focus on what you're doing now. It's like right present in front of your face and let's just do things backwards since I normally start things yeah. forward. Let's talk about the outputs and then work our way to the inputs. Um, so tell me about um, the speakers you have. Oh, wait. Are you carrying speakers no. with you? Okay, so, uh, so everything is the in way house. this tour works is we carry a control package. Mm-hmm. We carry monitor wedges and amplifiers. We carry all the microphones. We carry all the sub We carry a power distro. And we have a certain list on the rider of like five or six PA systems. Those are the ones we'd like to see. We all know when you're touring, a lot of times, you know, you see, you know, you got all the major players, you know, the, the ones that everybody wants. And I don't know, we not say it on the air. No, brand names. So yeah, so you know, they're all the Meyer D and B L acoustics. You know, whatever the hotshot PA of the time is. But we all know that we're gonna see a lot of Vertex, and like with this theater, they had an XLC in it, and it all depends on budgetary constraints, and this is the production manager had of me going, okay, what can we afford, and what 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 will the show budget allow? Some venues you go into, and they're an empty shell, and they say, well, what do you want? And then you have to say, well, okay, we're in Arkansas, what's available? What are my options? And then you have to weigh out the price versus your budget. Okay, can I afford the DMB or the L Acoustic, or do I have to go with 
another brand that's maybe so how does that work they say here's what we have and if you want something else you have to pay for it yeah okay. and certain places like you know some some places you just can't take their pa down you know it's or in some places you just have to pay to take the pa system down you know so you have to always you know being the production manager keep in mind that it's like i have to look at the bottom end of the budget because if i just went out and said get me what i want get me what i want get me what i want all of a sudden at the end of the night at settlement all this money is coming out of what eventually will go to the band no. and so they how, don't, how did that work out specifically here you saw what they had i saw you what said, they had they have exactly what i want no they have an xl and we're not, okay they have an old evxlc rig which i mean i've used a million and one times um the sound company i started with with a, when i when i was a kid was an ev house and i really know the stuff and i just i went yeah you know i can have good shows on oh, it cool. most of the house of blues have it you know is it the ferrari of pa systems no but it's you know you can get a decent sound out of it so and we all know with with smart and a lot of the other system analyzations kind of software you can kind of ballpark and get what you want out of it it may take a little bit more work than other than some of the newer pas i mean you know you, you get a dnb or an l acoustic or a meyer that's set up and it literally it loads your delay times it puts your array correction and everything in it and you just go Oh, great. You know, and you just, you know, three tweaks on your, your EQ and you're, okay, done. Where some of the older ones you need to work at. But every once in a while you get like an old vintage PA, like an 850 rig. And all of a sudden you go, man, my snare drum never sounds this good because it's that <laughs> horn-loaded mid-range just tearing your face off. So output-wise, uh, the smartest thing I did was on the Experience Hendrix tour about 10 years ago. Uh, the first show, I bought a Meyer Galileo. Just, I, I want it, I bought it, and it's still one of the best pieces of gear. Yeah, it's I, an investment. Yeah, uh, you know, I love gear. I am a gear junkie. <laughs> I mean, I that's my vice. I have a house full of gear, and that's why I own the control package on this tour. You know, I wanted my own console, and then once you have your own front of house console, you're like, no, if I own the monitor console, it might be easier. So now I have a monitor console, and it just it it snowballs microphones, cables, and then all of a sudden you you have a B rig, and you have backup of this and that. So the Galileo was a huge investment for me. I love it. Uh, outputs, how I drive it is uh, when we get super nerdy and technical. It's driving off an Avid profile at uh, 4824. So ASCBU into the into LA. the into the um, 408 four in eight out. So I drive off of my matrix off of the console. I drive four outputs. So there's a full stereo mix left right. There's a subwoofer or a sub bass send, and then there's a what I either call the front fill or center fill. So it's like a collapsed mono which is tailored from the matrix via subgroups if I want to just send vocals or if I want to just send vocals and guitars. But I mean, 70 to 80% of the time, it's a full mix. And what it is, like I said, it's a, it's a summed of the left, right, and mm -hmm. that'll go to the front fill send under balconies, center fill if the room has a center fill. Because a lot of the nice theaters now are putting, a, and a lot of the touring PAs are putting a center fill in, which I just love cool. from my theater days. Because you can drive the vocals kind of center and bring the focus, and then wait, you can mix the bands out wide. Yep. And it just gives you so much, just so much width and more room to work with things in the mix. How are you feeding that sub channel? The sub matrix is aux one, 
that drives a matrix just so I have on the matrix output page, I have the four outputs. So sure. left, right, sub, front fill, I call it, or center fill. And then I also have available uh, seven and eight on that console or a record, stereo record feed, which gets some audience mics uh, matrixed into it. So I have a reference for the band mm-hmm. if they want to hear anything. Um, I have a pair of Telefunken M60 prototypes at an XY in front of house and super nerdily uh, through a Midas XL48 preamp <laughs> AES <laughs> okay. into two channels. And then on stage, I have a pair of Sennheiser shotguns okay. coming back. And I kind of delay the mix to everything. So everything's kind of uh, t- arriving properly. Okay. So I have a reference mix, and it usually drives through a some sort of mastering plugin just to kind of sandwich it all together so I can hand the band if someone will call me up and they'll say, oh, we're going to we want to listen to this to work on it or if a TV show wants to hear mm-hmm. what's coming. Um, and that two mix burns to two tracks on Pro Tools, a stereo mix on Pro Tools, and then also a redundant Tescam compact flash recorder at okay. 4824. Uh, let's go back to the system XLC. Um, so do you see a system design ahead of time or are you just walk into the room on the day and you look at the design and say, okay, that's going to work or we're going to have to take it down and change some things how do you have any influence over sometimes if the pa is being brought in i'll try to come in in the morning when they're hanging it i systems engineer when i'm not on the road for audio companies in the pacific northwest so i know the software i know array calc and stuff like that and i'll be like and a lot of times when i'm advancing i'll go okay can you send me your array calc file or your whatever program they're using just so i can look at it and how it reacts to the room but i mean a room like this the pa's hung you come in but and you can't you, change anything no not really not here no not here <laughs> but you look at you you would hope that it's been in here since 2012 i think you go okay, <laughs> okay. hopefully they got something good and the, the, honestly the rig was great the, i did a minimal amount of filtering on the pa when i looked at it and yeah, it was so like, what what is the signal path then in between the PA and your Galileo. Is there anything Most else? Most of the time, the guys just they'll just hand me a drive snake and straight go to the straight to my okay. Galileo. And I, you know, I have options. Do you want it on stage? Do you want it in front of house? And uh, I, a lot of times, I don't see it. You know, amps or processing or all that. You know, you take a listen to it, and most of the time, if it's good, you just go, "Yeah, great." And you work with what they give you. Oh, so um, they have another. They have their own processing. They have their own processing. God. Yeah, and they you have, didn't ever look at that because I didn't even like, get into it. Um, I did talk to the systems engineer because when I did come in and tune the room on Thursday, because um, I have a target curve I try to hit in my smart system. Mm-hmm. I saw some of the delay times weren't necessarily where I want them to be because there's a couple uh, front fills. There's a couple schools of thought on how you should do them. You can either put them in time with the PA, and then there's um, some people who believe that you could add 20 milliseconds to it to kind of make sure the image is not. It kind of focuses the image a little bit more, but I'm kind of of the school of I want everything on on one time plane. Yeah, I've never quite understood misaligning the PA myself. Yeah, I haven't either. And <laughs> Intentionally. Just, I understand. Or You know what it would explain to me, if, if you want to cut this, it was when you do add that, it tends to bring the image down and focused a little more, some people think. But I'm always, yeah. yeah, I'm not real big on separate. Yeah, I've had conversations about that kind of stuff with other people. Yeah. And, and it's always, that's always how you end it, the conversation. Right? Some people think that. Yeah. They I've never th- been they able think to that. measure it and, and prove it. So yeah. 
uh, I'd rather base my, you know, base my uh, optimization process on things I can measure. And prove. A- absolutely. You know, <laughs> I mean, I came from a company where you, they handed you a 58 and a DN360 and you just talked into it and you just carved it up and and that's how you EQ'd a PA. And I mean, we're talking a, a PA with eight sends to eight zones, left, right, center, sub, balcony, under balcony, lawn. I just remember the big tours would come in there and you started to see the Sims and the early JBL smarts and stuff like that. And you're like, okay, there's something going on there. And I mean, we, we, you know, we weren't completely just like, you know, hey man, just plug in that mic and make it happen. We, you know, we had, you know, we had a, D, uh, a DN60 Clark Technic spectrum analyzer and we had an IV you could walk around with and that was, that was, that was pretty wild. But then when you actually get into physics of time arrival and phase coherency, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all this corrective EQ you were doing, once everything is phase aligned, you're like, oh wow, all that EQ that I used to have to put into the, the EQ for a 58 at a graduation, it, it's gone. You literally put the <laughs> high pass filter on, turn the mic up, and it sounds better than if you'd spent three hours trying to make it sound like that. Well, so let's wrap up talking about how you handle your front fills. So um, where do you place the microphone? Uh, I run four mics. Um, so when so when you are uh, so tell me your process then for um, tuning tuning the front fills themselves tuning the front fills themselves I guess level and delay where do you where level do you and delay yeah. well what I normally I mean let's just we can run through the whole process real quick because it's I've let's do it I've do optimized it because in rock and roll where we do a 10 a.m. load in and I I have lighting guys who need to focus lights and I have backline guys who need to check instruments and I need you know, 20 minutes of silence just to kind of do it. Um, I run four mics, um, Audix, uh, TM1s. Audix is literally down the street from my house. Oh, cool. Cliff Castle, great guy. So I have one a mic uh, on the back of my console, right where my ears would be. I have a, what's like a taper mic stand, we would call it. So about a 12 to 15 foot tall stand with um, my XY pair for recording. And then there's another TM1 up top just to get what's happening above. I have, and I stole this from uh, Jeremy who mixes Lifehouse. I saw him do this and I run a two pair to a mic stand and then about head height, I have a TM1 and then on the bottom on the same stand, I have a ground plane and I usually- Where does that go? Um, usually I try to go 25 feet back from stage off access. Always. And so your front of house position is something like 50 feet from stage well, or 100 feet? normally, like today, it's about 100. I okay. mean, I, I always can tell from the delay in the delay locator and smart. So I think I'm about 100 feet back today. But it could be anywhere from 75 feet to 125 well, feet. I mean, I carry a 330-foot snake. Oh, well. <laughs> European soccer stadium standard, you know. So I, four mics, one in front of house, head height, head one height, in front of house. Way up. Way up. Yeah. And that is in... That, does that kind of cover your your thinking that way? I don't have to run one up to the balcony. I will run one up to the balcony. Okay. I will, depending if there's a separate balcony system. You know, because remember, a lot just, of so tell me, so tell me about this one you have way up. What is that telling you? You know what? I I honestly I copied it off one of the guys I looked up to my entire life. They always had it up on a stand like that, and I just mm-hmm. went sure, cool. All you right. know, so. And then the other one that you have that roves around that has like one head height, one ground plane. One ground plane. That's cool. So that kind of speed things, speeds speeds things, things up. up. One mic stand. One around. mic stand and move it around. 
So how I normally do it is I start with the ground plane. I put pink noise up on one side of the PA and hit the delay locator on so all my So you're listening to one side, the whole array, but just the main array? Just the main array. And that I set as my zero time. And I look and see what my zero time is there. And then I look around to see if anything else is further back than that. And then normally what I do from there is... You mean on the stage? On the st Well, not the stage so much as like if, let's say, oh, the, the, speakers. If the front it, fills it, are it. back further. It, yeah. Or if there's a center fill that's back further than, you know. And most of the time I'll ask the house guy if I'm using, hey, what's your zero point here? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times... You want to know what the latest arrival is. The latest ar got. arrival is. And, you know, 99% of, of the time it's the main array. So what I do is I look, and I can tell you how exactly I did it here, because when I came in, I looked at the main array, and it was great. And then what I did was I pulled up the sub, and I looked at the, um, the phase between the mains and the subs, because I found out when you do the aux-driven sub on a profile, and then you have a plethora of plugins on your left-right bus, and nothing on your sub bus, you're changing arrival times because mm -hmm. one's going through a whole line of plugins and the other one's literally just going to the PA. So sure. I have a actual, just a, a, um, a time correction plugin right there that just lines them up. Wait, why wouldn't you do it in the Galileo? I do do it in the Galileo too. Oh, okay. So I did it in the Galileo for a long time, but just to get me even closer to make it quicker, it was like if I, I looked in smart this winter when we were home, I was like, here's my arrival time out of my left-right Galileo. Here's mm -hmm. my sub time. Not through speakers, just the actual outputs. Oh, and I lined them. You're correcting that initial I'm, delay just out of the yeah, console. Just got out it, of it. it so it, we know it, that it's it. there. So I came in, I looked, and the, the subs were, they were fine. I think I put a couple milliseconds on just to really make them overlay really nice. My, and are you looking at all the subs at once or just one of them? Normally I try to look at the one side. Okay. The subs here, there's so many of them. <laughs> the older I get, the and more... And are they left-right stacks under the main array? Left-right stacks, okay. double 18s, four high. So there's a huge summing under the balcony where I'm sitting. And then in the center, there's a definite power alley. When I looked at the front fills, I noticed that they were way far behind. And this I, is all the same mic position. All the same mic position. Ah, so you're 25 feet back, back. into so the I'm room looking, it's looking on at the axis PA with, the, with one of the arrays. With one of the arrays. And I looked at one of the front fills and the main array. And then I, I had talked to the house engineer. I said, hey, do you have a delay on your front fills? And he went, yeah, I have about... 20 something milliseconds and it's, I said can you just bypass it and as soon as it bypassed it lined right up to what I had cool so he actually had pulled them back 20 milliseconds mm -hmm. I walked down with my tablet and listened to where where they feel right because I don't want them overpowering because there's been a few times where the front fills are your too tablet's loud. controlling your Galileo Galileo okay so I do on my level control pretty much I use my Galileo as my master fader how do you do that so you have like compass on an iPad or something no, I have it on. I have a old X sixty one IBM ThinkPad. Okay. And I just run around with that, and that oh, way, got it. you know, I love Smart, and I get it to where it hits my target curve. But once it's done, I listen to the virtual sound check and hear if it sounds like my show. And sometimes Smart will tell you to pull this much EQ out, and you wind up putting some of the back in just to warm it up a little bit. So is that the next step then? So you looked at the relationship between the main array and the sub, then you looked at main array and front fill, and then are you looking at combined systems for EQ? The last one, of course, is everything together. So on the Galileo, of course, you have parametric and graphic on the input channels, and then you have all your individual output, your 10-band parametrics on the outputs. 
So what I'll do is I'll individually EQ the systems, one side, look at the other side, match the EQ to the oh, other I see. side. So before you look at combined systems, yeah. when you're still looking at solo systems, you're doing an EQ step there. Yeah, well. and then I'm looking at what the EQ is culminating after you individually EQ the system. And I'm tend not to tend tune flat. I tried for a long time to do that flat. Oh, so yeah, you said you have a target curve. Um... It's like a six dB slope from low to high, you know, where okay. it tapers down. It seems to be the most musical curve. And then with this band, since we have a lot of acoustic guitars, I tend to kind of around 160, 125, kind of pull a little bit more there just because the acoustics will build yeah. up there. Tell me just about, this is a smart, specific question. How did you, how do you have a saved, how did you create a saved trace that is your target trace to look at in the transfer function? One of these multiple shows that I did in a theater that I really you enjoyed. found something you liked. I you found something it. I liked, and at the end of the night, I came, or the end of the show, when the theater loaded out, I brought Pink Noise back up and took a snapshot of it. Nice. And normally I look at that and I go, okay, that's about, and it's never perfect. It's normally like where it needs to sit, where right. it's not going to be too bright or too bitey in the mid-range. Right, and different speaker systems are, absolutely. even if they have the exact same response, yeah. might not have the same all-around qualities and still have to do more work. No, how does the how does the horn in that box react with the driver on its mm -hmm. back as compared to what this box does and the relationship of components in the box? How do they work with one another? Because also at the same time, you could tune a box at a lower level, but as soon as you bring it up to a, a louder volume, it could literally almost change the characteristic of the box a little mm -hmm. bit and the tuning. Okay. So you talked about how you use uh, your microphone on stands and you're looking at a ground plane measurement. Um, when do you start incorporating your front of house microphone? I love in the last couple versions of smart, the, um, averaging live averaging. I love it Yeah. because all of a sudden your coherency line, when you look at individual mics where you're like, oh, okay, the mid range there, I'm not getting the best reading. For some reason, when you add four mics in and an average, most of the time I leave the ground plane out because that's got a, a, just one function normally. But with the three mics that are kind of head level and above, the coherency just really cleans up. And so you're getting really good data that you're looking at. So this is when you switch to looking at the entire system. Looking at the entire system, systems, yeah. You'll have on all four traces at the same, all four transfer function measurements usually, plus a live average? Usually three, three. and an okay. average, yeah. Cool. Because if I have one mid-house and I have one down front and then I have one in the back, which I've done that a lot too, you can see what the system is doing. And you can also look at the volume, because I also um, calibrate my mics to look at dB to see what the slope is. Like a theater like this, since I'm under a balcony, there's an eight to 10 dB slope, or eight to, yeah, eight to 10 dB between what the reading is down front and what I'm hearing in the back. Oh, wow. Where it could be lot. 97 dB in the first few rows, it's 90 dB back where I am under the balcony, especially when people stand up. That's rough. Know? Yeah. Can you, before I forget, will you share your target trace with me so I can share it with other people? Sure. Cool. Yeah. I'll put yeah. it on the show notes. Yeah. It's always fun. People like to see, you know, what other um, targets people are working with. During the show, do you ever go back and look at um, the last combined systems trace you stored at front of house? Basically, my question is, do you continue measuring looking at a transfer function during the show? Um, I have the transfer function up, um, but more or less by that point, I look at the RTA. Yeah. 
Uh, and I set to uh, one third just because one third is what the old analyzers used to be. And I really don't need anything that's surgical. Um, and it's set relatively fast, but kind of on an average. And it's more or less just a look. I like to see if anything's building up that in the heat of mixing the show, because there's so much going on that I'm just missing. Oh, oh wow, that 160 seems to be building up. And it's just, it's a really great tool mm -hmm. to look over real quick and go, okay, there it is. And just grab it fast where I don't really want to be surgical with the EQ, you know, it, it just, it, I wanted it to be musical more than surgical. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty-four lines from stage on this tour. Mm -hmm. They all come down, uh, the Avid Rack is on stage, and then I have eight channels of Midas XL48 inserted via AES, and they come down analog lines. So I have a 20-channel analog snake, I have four AES lines, and then I have a 240-volt L, L13, L1430 power cable. Okay. For That's the snake, and um, so everything comes into the console. Tell me and, about how you ha like those inputs laid out. Is it pretty traditional or? Um, um, traditional for the most part, but I love the fact on the Avid is if you have to add another drum channel down at the end, you can move it into your drum lineup. Mm -hmm. I'm the typical kick, snare, hat, toms, percussion, bass, keys, guitars, vocals. You know, it's all in blocks, and it's more or less set up in groups on my console with blank channels in between for the players. And then the same thing I do with the VCAs is every player has a VCA, and then at the end I do a overall vocal VCA and an overall band VCA, okay. which uh, Tony Blanc taught to me years ago. And it's just a good way to always, if you need to push the vocals over the top of the band or if you want to pull the vocals back to let the band really vamp out or something like that, it's just a really good way. Um, I'm a huge subgroup guy, so okay. everything subgroups down. Um, People are always saying that about you. He's a huge subgroup yeah, guy. Yeah, I'm a huge subgroup guy. <laughs> no, and sometimes like I'll set up a festival scene. I mixed the Portland Blues Festival this summer, and I did my normal profile, like start file, which is subgrouped out. And some engineers went, ah, I just don't do that. I'm like, well, great, you know, you can leave them at zero. Don't leave, worry about it. Leave them what you want to do. <laughs> and you're doing some processing in those subgroups? Okay. A lot of processing in the subgroups. Um, parallels on drums and vocals. So there's a uh, drum comp channel that seems to get more uh, kick, snare, hat, tom. No, 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 hats, just kick, snare, toms. Kind of the beefy things that kind of need that crush a little bit to push them through. And then another drum subgroup, that's the entire kid. Bass has a group. Keys have a group. Good electric guitars have a group. Acoustic guitars have a group. And then I have a parallel. Uh, they're all stereo groups. And then four also uh, vocals kind of doing the same thing. Oh, I should have asked when we were talking about the system, are you panning things in the show? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Panning instruments? Um, okay. Main vocals are right up one and center because the, the whole process with this band is, is the three voices are one voice when they sing together. And uh, there's a lot of snapshots where one guitar will go hard left or hard right, and things do move around. Um, 
you know, and I spread on the strings. I have four string players on this tour, and you know, keyboards pretty wide, overheads pretty wide, because you know, if you're spreading keyboards, do you worry about me maybe missing part of the uh, keyboard if I'm way over on one not side? Not too much with keyboards, and a lot of times, like when we're doing bigger places with side hangs, I'll do the reverse on the side hangs, mm. so it'll be instead of uh, left right it'll be right left so you do that so you reverse it so there's a reverse stereo image on the sides so and I, then I still get to hear the whole instrument yeah you're gonna hear the whole <laughs> instruments not the only time we ever do anything in this show I mean I'm not doing anything like really extreme but there's a few songs that on the record things got panned left or right where there's an acoustic that they're using as like a percussion instrument that might just go hard left for a, a few things you know you worry about it a little bit but you know the thing that you always got to remember is the vocal is the focus especially with this show what's going on in some of these channels and and how what are some pieces of the mix that you think maybe are unique or would be interesting to talk about or, or pe other people might want to know about? Uh, three snare mics, two tops, oh, wow. two tops and a bottom. Two tops? What's going uh, on? Telefunk and a matey, uh, Sennheiser 914, and Audio-Technica AE3000. Okay. The M80 is a typical 57 snare drum top. Um, a couple years ago, I noticed I really liked the condenser on the bottom really kind of bring out the brightness of the snare. And then I added the condenser. I'd seen a million people in the studio do it. Mm -hmm. And I move it around with some different acts. I do reggae acts sometimes. And I use it as a cross stick on the rim to get that really nice uh, tick. Yeah. But with this show, uh, Chris will play brushes and stuff like that. And it also gives you a chance to... Um, I don't want every song to sound exactly the same, like there's the snare okay, sound. Okay, so you're switching back and forth. You're not they combining move them. throughout the show. Every mic comes in and out, and yes. the reverbs change a little bit, just so you know, you're not just stuck with the drum sound for mm -hmm. the entire show. If you listen to a record, not every song and the drums sound the same. So, right. yeah, yeah. And uh, ribbons for overheads. Oh, wow. That I started about a year ago. It's all bold, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's for what we're doing with the show. It's amazing. I was okay. typical vintage 414s forever. Nice. Went to these uh, AEA and N8s and just brilliant. Nice. Strings, four string players, two cellos, violin, viola, uh, pickups. Oh, okay. Into, we tried and we do use sometimes the DPAs, which are amazing, but with the drummer sitting right there, I wanted something clean. So pretty good friends with the guys at Radio, and they've been great to me over the years, and I fully endorse and support their products. Uh, PZDIs. Yep, I've heard about it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, was a little sterile in rehearsals. Well, uh, Jerry, our monitor engineer, said, hey, um, I wanted to kind of keep everything in the box, you know, plug-ins and all that. So I went back after we did our rehearsals and kind of worked on the mix for about two weeks in my basement. Um, with my console and wound up getting four knee 511s from Jerry's recommendation oh, wow. okay. and used the silk function on them okay. and just all of a sudden the string sound is people just are like is that real and wow. like, yeah so, great. so let's back up for a second so the deal with the PZ DIs from radial um, is the higher higher impedance, impedance. yeah designed for uh, a Piazzo pickups and the silk function of the preamps warmth just all of a sudden I mean I've mixed a lot of classical, Broadway, stuff like that, where I've had string instruments, and the first thing you always kind of did was kind of dull the stuff out a little bit, but we wanted kind of a ethereal, like, you, you, like lush, like you want to 
swim away in, in the string sound, and I think we really accomplished that. Okay. Vocal mics are pretty standard. Brandy sings through a custom gold 105. Nice. Um, Tim and Phil are on 935s, which I've loved since the first time Sennheiser kind of gave me a, a, a demo one and went, wow, this is a great vocal mic. Drums are pretty basic, 901, 902, the snare, uh, 184s, hi-hat and ride, the ribbons for overheads, uh, 421 on the floor tom, 904, uh, all radial DIs on everything, except for the bass. The bass DI, I do two DIs on the bass. I do one pre-effects and one post-effects. The pre-effects is a radial J48. And uh, Jerry, under his recommendation again, Boris, who owns a company called Sonic Farm out of Vancouver, Washington, brought me this DI box. And then I'll tell you about my other secret weapon. Okay. <laughs> this DI box, he plugged it in. And I, you know, by that point, we kind of were in, done with rehearsals. I kind of dialed in my mix and I went, we're you know, using an Avalon U5. And then this showed up and I was like, just leave it. You know, <laughs> it was just stunning what this bass DI did. So, really? Yeah, we went to that. Wait, what was your other secret weapon? Is that it? No, the other secret weapon is called a Creamliner 3. What's that? It's a 1U unit. It's got transformers. It's got tubes. It's a two-channel, almost like a saturation. Okay. And I don't know what it was. He, you know, I... I wasn't particularly like interested in adding. Once again, I wanted to stay in the box. So now I've got a rack of Neve 511s. I've got a I've got outboard uh, reverbs mm -hmm. for the main vocals, and then this box showed up. Outboard reverbs. Yeah, outboard reverbs. All right. Creamliner box showed up, and it's a two-channel master bus processor that's supposed to help. I love how you say that. Like it just by itself, mysteriously. You don't yeah. know where it came from. <laughs> well, no, he just he showed up at the Commodore ballroom, and I put it in line during. Sound check and I went. Oh, great! Just take my money now. Oh my god! You know, wow. and it literally just it 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 made a profile, which we all know how a profile sounds. All of a sudden, sound like no other profile I've ever heard before. Huh. It had warmth and depth, and cool. just it worked so well for what the sound of this record and this tour needed to sound like. And I just I'm sold on it 100. percent Talking to Robert Scoville, he was telling me about a. Um giant super heavy transformer that he carries around with him in his rack and his his tech really doesn't like because it's so heavy um so sounds like similar situation like something that he inserts across the master bus that he feels like he can't live without but yours is just a lot lighter uh it's it's a it's a heavy unit i mean i have oh, i have okay. an eight space rack up there that's full of some really nice stuff but yeah it's uh it's a really great piece, man. I can't speak. It's Sonic Farms. They're out of Vancouver, British Columbia, and I just highly recommend anything the guy makes. We're playing with one of the 500 series preamps in Brandy's studio right now, and it's just mind-blowing mind what this guy makes. Uh, so you've got to go. Um, right. If anyone wants to follow your work and the stuff that you're doing, do you have a place to do that online? Uh, Facebook, okay. Sean Quackenbush, and then uh, Instagram is FOH Quack. Cool. You know? Reach out to me. I geek out, and I'll talk for hours about this stuff. Well, Sean, um, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Big Can fan. Sound Design Live. I want to thank Rudolf Smetena for the music of today's episode. You can find more of his music over at soundcloud.com slash ruderuda-1. That's R-U-D-E-R-U-D-A-1, the number one. 
Sound Design Live is supported by Bob, Chris, Dave, DC Sound Up, Ellis, Senqui, Joel, Kuba, Learn Stage Lighting, Martin, Michael, Nicholas, Nicholas, and Roadie Free Radio. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Make it so you can